We're looking at Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22. Back when Ann and I only had one car, she one time needed to take our car on a trip, leaving me without a car. And a really generous member of the church that we were attending at the time lent me his car, his luxury car. It was amazing. You got in and you closed the door and it was completely silent inside. It drove super smoothly. It handled responsively. The engine had loads of power. The five-speed manual transmission shifted like butter. The uh, dashboard was all immaculately stitched leather. It had heated seats. It had all the bells and whistles. You drove that car and you knew wow, this is a whole different experience than driving our car. <laughs> I wonder if we could ever have a car like this. But then you, you look at the price tag and you're like, I wonder if we should be content with our little import hatch pack that we've had for many years that gets us from point A to point B. Why doesn't everyone own a Lexus, a BMW, a Tesla, a Range Rover? Well, that experience remind me that it's because uh, most people aren't willing or aren't able to pay the price. And that's what today's passage is about. In today's passage, a couple people come up to Jesus. They've seen how awesome he is. They've tasted the goodness of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. They've seen the miracles he's doing. They've been gripped by his radical new teaching that has the ring of truth and, and a compelling offer of life. And they're wanting to follow Jesus. And Jesus is like, that's great. But do you know what it will cost? Do you know what the price tag is for following me? And then Jesus lays on, on each of the two people in this story a big challenge. And so this is a tough passage. In, in my Bible, the editors have put a section heading above it and, and called it the cost of following Jesus. And it's a big cost. But here's my experience with Jesus and, and with getting to know Jesus through the New Testament. Every time Jesus challenges us like this, there's also, right along with it, a warm, grace-filled invitation. And on the other hand, every time Jesus offers us a warm, comforting, peace-filled invitation, that invitation has teeth. There's a challenge there as well. With Jesus, the, the two always seem to go together because, as the bumper sticker puts it, Jesus loves us just the way we are, more than we know. But, Jesus also loves us too much to leave us that way, right? And, and uh, this is one of those not leave us that way passages. This is a challenging passage. But here's the invitation I hear in it. And here's the good news that I hear in this passage. Jesus is offering us something better. Something better. A life that's better than the life we've been living. A purpose that's better than what we've been living for. An identity that's better than, than what we've been told all our life we are. Just like one drives that, that luxury or one drive in that luxury car made me realize that when it came to driving a car, there was something so much better than the car I was driving. 
And it made me dream a little of what it would be like to, to have a better set of wheels. So Jesus is offering us and inviting us into a life that's so much better. But of course, there's a cost. And that's the challenge. And so this passage is inviting us to wrestle with the so much better life that Jesus is offering and whether we're willing to pay the cost. Question for your life, for my life, is Jesus worth it? In this passage, we see two people who come up to Jesus and they, they face a decision about whether they're going to quite literally follow Jesus. But to really see the decision they're facing and, and um, what's going on for them, we need, to, we need to back up a bit and see what's going on in the scene and in the bigger story of Jesus' life and ministry. Here in Matthew 8, we're early on in the public life of Jesus. He's been doing miracles and crowds have been following him. In chapters 5 to 7, Matthew has given us the most famous uh, sermon that Jesus ever preached called the Sermon on the Mount which sets out a radically different vision of, of how to do life and, and of what life in Jesus' kingdom and under his leadership looks like. And then after that sermon, Jesus still has large crowds following him. And, and now, in, starting in chapter 8, we get a close-up view of some of the amazing miracles that Jesus is doing. Some wonderful, life-transforming acts of power. Jesus cleanses someone who has leprosy, a terrible contagious skin disease, heals them. Jesus heals um, someone who's paralyzed, who was bed-bound. Jesus speaks a word, and this person gets up, and they're whole again, and they can literally walk out and live a whole new life. Jesus then heals the mother-in-law of, of one of his followers, Peter, from a terrible fever. And, and crowds are gathering around Jesus, and he's healing them all, Matthew tells us. And, and people who have been bound and harassed and oppressed by dark spirits are coming. And Jesus is setting them free, and it's awesome. Everything Jesus touches just turns to gold. Jesus is just so powerful and so wonderful. And because of him, people are made whole and lives are set free. It's awesome. It's amazing. And so you can see why people are attracted to Jesus, right? Maybe some of this is what attracted you to Jesus. And, and so if you're with Jesus, if you're one of his followers, if you're um, an insider to his movement at this point, I think what happens next in verse 18 would be shocking or at least confusing. Jesus says, guess what? We're leaving. We're getting away from all of this. We're getting into a boat, and we're going to the other side of the lake. Now, this is a big lake, so this isn't just a nice summer sail, you know, a little R&R &R on the water. No, if you know the geography of where Jesus was, basically this means they're leaving the region. Let me just read for you quickly how Mark's gospel, another version of this, tells what, what happened here. This is in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, after Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law and everyone was gathered around and Jesus was healing everyone and casting out evil spirits, we read in Mark 1, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. 
Simon Peter and, and his companions went to look for him. And, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. But Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else. Jesus is leaving town just as his ministry is really thriving. Now, if you're following Jesus at this point, how do you feel about this? All of a sudden, we're turning down speaking engagements. <laughs> we're we're going to stop posting on social media just when we've gotten so much momentum and so many followers. We're deplatforming ourselves, Jesus. Seriously? What are you thinking? And it's at this moment of surprise when Jesus gives orders to cross the lake that a crisis of discipleship, a decision point of whether to keep following Jesus or to follow him in the first place, happens for two would-be followers. And these two people are really different from each other. Each, and as a result, each one experiences this crisis in their own way. The first person is a wannabe disciple, a potential new recruit. And he seems like a shoe-in. He's already got extensive religious background. In fact, he's a teacher of the law. In other words, he's a trained religious professional. He's got the credentials, the resume. He's got the training and the expertise. And he says, I'm paraphrasing, in my professional opinion, from what I've seen and from what I've experienced, I'm in, Jesus. If you'll let me, I'd like to join you. In fact, I'll follow you wherever you go. I want you to be my rabbi. And Jesus looks at him and replies, the son of man, that's Jesus, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving town. I'm going to another region on the far side of the lake, and I've got no reservations there at the local Marriott. I've got no friend over there who's going to put us all up in his lake house. So we might be sleeping outside tonight. Now, I wonder if this was surprising. I mean, Jesus is powerful. Remember what he's been doing. Amazing miracles that, that have been drawing crowds. The power of heaven just pouring out. Jesus has so much power. How could a man who literally has the power of heaven at his fingertips not be able to come up with somewhere to sleep for the night? Right? All that power and he's going to be vulnerable and exposed and uncomfortable? How could this be? Well, I think there are two reasons that explain it. First, Jesus hasn't come to use his power for himself or for his own benefit. He's not interested in leveraging his popularity into a revenue stream or using his connections with heaven for his own comfort, which in itself is amazing, right? I mean, who else do you know who has immense power and immense privilege and doesn't use it for themselves? But Jesus says, I know who I am, I'm God's own son, God's beloved son. That's my identity. And so as God's son, I'm going to trust my heavenly father for what I need. I'm going to use my power not for myself, but only in the ways my father directs me. I trust him completely. 
for God's purposes, for God's heart. That's what I'm about. And this leads to the second reason Jesus, powerful though he is, has nowhere to lay his head. And that's because of why he came. The, the heart that Jesus shares with his father about who he came for. Who did Jesus come for? He came for the least, the last, the lost, the lonely, and the left behind. He didn't come just for the rich and famous. He came also and even primarily for the lonely and the overlooked and the losers. And Jesus knew he wasn't going to be able to reach people like that from a limousine motorcade or a penthouse suite. And so Jesus went to where the least and the last and the lost were. And he lived like they lived. He got down on their level so that he could relate to them, so that he could relate to us. Without power, without privilege, because he and his father loved them and us, Jesus was willing to give up his prerogatives and his comforts that could have been his in order to be there for and with the least. Do you realize that's Jesus' M.O.? In love, he sacrifices his own comfort and prerogatives to reach those he loves. And among those he loves, he loves you and he loves me. He came and he suffered with nowhere to lay his head, not just for people back then, but for you and for me today too. That's the good news in this passage. Here's the challenge though. If you're with Jesus, if you're on his team, if you're following him, or if you're thinking about joining him, this means he's teaching you, he's teaching us to love like this too. Jesus is like, you want to follow me? Awesome. Just so you know, though, others, or often rather, I'm hanging out with people who don't have much. I'm getting on their level. I'm doing what it takes, even if it's not comfortable for me, in order that I can be with them and love them well, because that's how I roll, and that's how I love. And so if you're with me, I'm not promising you every creature comfort that you've ever wanted along the way, because I'm going to teach you how to love like this too. This reminds me of a story I heard recently about the U.S. women's national soccer team the ones that put women's soccer on the map in terms of international recognition, they, they, um, when, when they started their amazing run, they brought home Olympic gold four times in a row from 1996 to 2012. And they were so exciting to watch, right? I'm sure some of you were watching them. When the lights were the brightest on the world stage, they dazzled. They were the best. And, and names like Mia Hamm and Abby Wambach, became household names and heroes to lots of kids. But here's what I didn't know. Another local pastor told me this, and I wasn't able to verify it on the internet, so you can try to fact check it yourself if you want. But evidently, as the woman's team were rising stars and they were enjoying the limelight and they were winning Olympic gold, you'd assume that they were enjoying the life of any huge sports star. Limousine rides, fancy hotel rooms, etc. But evidently, no. 
there was so little money when they traveled that they would have to sleep on couches of generous families in whatever city they were going to play at. And, and when they weren't training or practicing, they'd be spending time outside of local grocery stores at tables that they set up, raising awareness for women's soccer and collecting donations that sometimes was the gas money that they needed to get to their next match. Why did they put up with all of that? Because they loved the game. And you can imagine some starry-eyed young player who, watching them compete in front of TV cameras and, and seeing them on Sports Illustrated and thinking, that looks awesome. When I grow up, I want to make that team. And you could imagine this young player learning with excitement that the team was going to be visiting her town and, and going down to the grocery store and meeting some of the team and, and telling them about her love for soccer and, and, and her dream to play on, on, on their team. And you could imagine the team saying, that is so awesome, but here's something you need to know. It's maybe not all that you think. There's so little money in this for us we sometimes don't have anywhere to lay our head at night. And that's what Jesus is saying to this would-be follower. That's the cost. So why is it worth it? Why is it worth walking closely with Jesus? Do you know? Do you remember? Well, here's my experience. Jesus is real. And Jesus is changing me. Occasionally, at moments, dramatically so. Most of the time, slowly and gradually. Over the years, I've become more generous and less stingy. More kind and less judgmental. More compassionate and less perfectionistic. More grateful and less critical. And as a result, um, is a life where I have more joy and more peace. Jesus has called me to some hard things, but he's always taken care of me and provided for me and blessed me with far more than I deserve. And each hard thing, though, though sometimes I was afraid or I didn't want to make the sacrifice at the time, in each case I can look back now and I can say, wow, Jesus knew what he was doing when he called me to that. And I wouldn't have done it any other way in retrospect. Jesus is awesome. He really does offer us life, a life more rich uh, uh, um, and, and more life than, than anyone or anything else can offer. That's why. Those are all reasons why it's worth the cost to follow Jesus. Well, for that teacher of the law by the lake that day, we don't know how it turned out for him. We don't know if he followed or if he turned back because he was worried that he might have an uncomfortable night's sleep. If he turned back, think how much he missed out on. I don't want to miss out on that. I need to remind myself of that fact. In the time we have left, let's look a little more briefly at the second person by the lake who has to decide whether he's going to keep following Jesus. Because at least for me, I identify with the first person, but I identify even more with the second person. The second person 
evidently is already following Jesus. Verse 21 calls him a disciple, and this disciple calls Jesus Lord. Evidently, up to this point, this disciple has already been a part of Jesus's group. But now, remember, Jesus has just done something surprising, something maybe upsetting. Jesus has said, we're leaving town now. We're leaving the crowds, leaving the popularity, leaving the comfort of this town that we're in, and we're going out there into the unknown across the lake. And this disciple is like, Jesus, I'll go, but first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus replies with this shocking line, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, I don't know about you, but this one has always been hard for me to understand. I mean, seriously, Jesus, you can't wait a day or two for this poor guy to go to his own dad's funeral. Jesus, in fact, you're a rabbi. Why don't you conduct the guy's funeral, right? Isn't that what rabbis are supposed to do? Well, that's how I understood it until I learned a bit more of the culture of Jesus's day and what was actually involved in funeral practices back at that time. First of all, in that cultural, funerals weren't done in a few hours. They lasted several days, maybe a week. Family gathered together. There were daily trips to the grave to mourn. And so at the very least, this is going to take several days. But even more importantly, burial in that culture was a two-step process, and it actually took at least a year to complete both parts. The first stage was putting the dead body in the tomb and mourning the death. But the second stage, just as importantly, involved going back a year later and gathering up um, the bones after everything else had decayed, gathering up the bones and putting them in a small box called an ossuary, and then putting that box in a separate niche alongside the boxes of other family members. And until this whole process was done, in that culture, the dead relative had not fully been honored or laid to rest. And so burying your father in that culture could take a whole year. And that's if the father is even dead yet. It's possible he's on hospice. His health is failing. Do we even know if he's dead yet? And here's the important thing to know ab about the culture Jesus is living in. Burying one's father was an honor and a key responsibility of the firstborn son. So it was super important. Maybe you've memorized the Ten Commandments. What's the fifth one? Honor your father and mother. And we think of that as applying to kids, you know, obey mom and dad. But in ancient Jewish culture, where elders were deeply respected and family obligations were very important, they realized that honoring your parents doesn't stop when you grow up. No, in that culture, you continue to honor your parents their whole lives. And one key way you honored their, your parents was by giving them a proper burial when they died. Maybe that seems strange to some of us. If we grew up in America, that's not how we operate. But in a lot of cultures, and in Jesus' culture for sure, this was massively important. So if you were a good son, a firstborn son, honoring your aging father 
with a proper, respectable burial was one of the most important moral and religious duties of your life. Any self-respecting son would take this seriously. And here's the kicker. Any son who neglected to honor their father in this way would be viewed by their family and their village and their synagogue as being irresponsible, neglectful, even shameful and immoral. You see how this sheds a different light on verses 21 and 22. Do you see what this disciple is facing here? Jesus, I'll follow you, but first I need to bury my aged father. And I'm sure he expects Jesus to say, of course you do. That's your responsibility. I'm so glad you're a good son. But no, Jesus says something that for that culture was utterly scandalous and shocking. He says, no, leave your father. You follow me and let the dead, the spiritually dead, bury their own dead. Do you see the cost for this guy of following Jesus here? If what the first person had to wrestle with was comfort and prosperity, what this second guy has to wrestle with is his reputation and his sense of responsibility and even his religion, his religious righteousness. Has following Jesus ever cost you that? Here's one way to put it. Let me ask you a question. What do you really love more? Do you love Jesus more or do you love your church more? Do you realize that we can make church, we can make CBC an idol? And it can get in the way of following Jesus. And when this happens, which one are you going to choose? But here's something else that really strikes me here. Who does Jesus think he is? Who does Jesus think he is? Saying, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead? Saying, forget about being responsible, forget about your religious obligations, or in today's language, your church obligations? Forget about honoring your father, which the Ten Commandments requires you to do? Forget about your honor, your reputation, what your family or what other church people think of you? Come, follow me. Compared to me, all of that is just dead people stuff. In other words, I've got life, Jesus is saying. I've got life. Do you see how bold and radical and presumptuous this is? We're, we're back to our luxury car. The price tag is high. But the question is, are you ready for something so much better than what you have now? Do you realize what Jesus is offering? He's offering life. He's offering purpose. He's offering a life of love. He, he's offering God's power for you and in you and through you. And yes, it will cost you a lot to follow him. But think of what you'll gain. This is what I try to remember when, when the cost feels high. 
I try to remember why it's worth it. So worth it. I try to remember that with Jesus, in, in every big challenge that he makes, there's a bigger invitation, there's a bigger offer of grace, a bigger offer of something good. Jesus is being gracious when he calls me away from the things that never really can satisfy me anyway. Yes, Jesus sets the bar high. But Jesus doesn't challenge us just for challenge's sake. He doesn't just enjoy seeing if we'll do hard things. Or, or how much, seeing how much unhappiness we'll tolerate to prove our commitment to him. Jesus is not an exacting, hard-to-please leader. He's not setting a high bar just to weed people out, though inevitably it does have that effect. No, Jesus just knows that none of the other stuff that pulls on our hearts that, that um, we hold so tightly to really, in the end, satisfy our souls. It's, those things don't really give us life. And Jesus is offering us real life and real love. He's offering us and this whole world something better. This reminds me of something C.S. Lewis said, that great English writer. Um, I might have quoted this before. It's from his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So again, as my time at CBC comes to a close in a few weeks, I wanted to leave you with Jesus. And, and with his challenge for us to really follow him and why he's really worth it. And so I invite you to think about your life right now and um, what Jesus is challenging you about and what it is that, that we're pursuing or that we're holding on to, thinking it's going to make us happy, thinking it's going to satisfy us. But Jesus is like, it's not really all that you think. Compared to the life I can give you, it's really just dead people stuff. What's that thing in your life, in my life? And then, why is Jesus better? Do we know? Do we remember? Are you hungry for Jesus and what only he can offer? Are you hungry for something better?